Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Eniash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 119, Something to Protect, Albus Dumbledore. Harry stood now before the gargoyles that guarded the headmaster's... No, the headmistress's office. He had been summoned by Professor Sinestra, told that it was an emergency, but the gates were not opening for him. Experiment had showed that the stone made one transfiguration permanent every three minutes and fifty-four seconds, irrespective of the size of the object transfigured. Just once, holding the Philosopher's Stone up to the light of Harry's most powerful flashlight in an otherwise darkened closet, Harry had thought he'd seen an array of tiny points inside the chunk of crimson glass. But Harry hadn't been able to see it again, and now suspected himself of having imagined it. The stone had no other powers that Harry could detect, nor did it respond to any attempted mental commands. Harry had given himself until noon tomorrow to figure out how to begin using the stone without it being grabbed by someone else, trying not to think about what was still happening, what had always been happening, in the meanwhile. Ten minutes late, Minerva McGonagall approached, moving in a swift stride. Her arms were full of papers, and she was once again wearing the sorting hat. The gargoyles, with a brief sound of grinding stone, bowed low before her. The new password is impermanence, Minerva said to the gargoyles, and they stepped aside. I'm sorry, Mr. Potter, I was delayed. Understood. Minerva mounted the long spiral stairs, climbing instead of waiting to be carried, Harry following behind her. We are meeting with Amelia Bones, director of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement with Alistair Moody, whom you've met, and with Bartimius Crouch, director of the Department of International Magical Cooperation. They are Dumbledore's heirs as much as you or I. How... how's Hermione doing? Harry hadn't had a chance to ask until now. Phileas said she seemed rather in shock, which I suppose is not surprising. She asked where you were, was told you were at a Quidditch game, asked where you really were, and refused to speak with anyone about what happened until she was allowed to talk with you. She was taken to St. Mungo's. The headmistress now sounded slightly perturbed. A standard diagnostic charm showed Miss Granger as a healthy unicorn, in excellent physical condition except that her mane needs combing. Charms to detect active magic have each time detected her as being in the process of transforming into another shape. There was an unspeakable who showed up before Phileas, uh removed him. He performed certain spells he probably ought not to have known, and declared that Hermione's soul was in healthy condition, but at least a mile away from her body. At that point, the senior healers gave up. She's currently alone in a cell with the rats and flies. She's what? I'm sorry, Mr. Potter, that's transfiguration jargon. Miss Granger is in an isolation chamber with a cage of tame rats and a box of flies that will bear offspring in a single day. Logic suggests that whatever mystery underlies her resurrection, it left behind an emanation that is causing the healer's charms to produce gibberish. But if nothing happens to the rats or the fly's offspring, Miss Granger will be declared safe to return to Hogwarts after she wakes up again tomorrow morning. Harry still wasn't sure, wasn't sure at all, what Hermione would think of having been resurrected. 
at least under these particular circumstances. He didn't actually think Hermione would yell at him for doing it wrong. That was just Harry's brain trying to imagine her as a stereotype. Harry had been legitimately exhausted and not thinking very straight when he'd come up with that cover story, and Hermione would probably understand that part. But he couldn't imagine what Hermione would think. I wonder how Miss Granger will feel about having also vanquished you-know-who, Minerva said reflectively, climbing the moving stairs fast enough that Harry felt out of breath trying to keep up. And people believing the most interesting things about her. You mean, because she's always self-identified as a normal academic genius, and now a bunch of people think of her as the girl who revived and everyone wants to shake her hand? Even though she doesn't remember doing anything to earn it, even though it was all someone else's work and other people's sacrifices, and she's getting the credit, even though she doesn't feel like she's actually done anything worthy of the way other people treat her, and she's not sure if she can ever live up to the person they imagine. Gosh, I don't know. I can't imagine what that feels like. Maybe I shouldn't have subjected her to it. But people had to be given something to believe, or heaven knows what they would have made up. Feeling guilty about this would be stupid. The two of them reached the top of the stairs and came into the office filled with dozens of strange objects, all facing a great desk and a mighty throne behind it. Minerva's hand passed over one of those objects, the one with golden wibblers, her eyes closing briefly. Then Minerva took off the sorting hat and put it on a hat rack that held three slippers for left feet. She transformed the mighty throne into a simple cushioned chair and the great desk into a round table around which four other chairs rose up. Harry watched it all with a strange pain in his throat. He knew, without either of them saying anything, that there should have been more ceremony for the changing of the chairs, the changing of the table. Much more ceremony for the first time the headmistress sat down in her new office. But for whatever reason, there wasn't time, and Minerva McGonagall was discarding all that for speed. A wave of Minerva's wand lit the flue fire in the fireplace, even as Minerva sat down into the chair that had been Dumbledore's. Harry quietly took one of the chairs around the table, sitting at Minerva's left. Almost at once, the flue fire burned Emeraldine and whirled out Alistair Moody, who spun around with his wand raised, taking in the whole room at a seeming glance, and then pointed his wand directly at Harry and said, Avada Kedavra. It happened so fast and took him so completely by surprise that Harry's wand wasn't even half raised by the time Alistair Moody finished the incantation. Just checking. Alistair said to the headmistress, whose own wand was now pointed at Alistair, her mouth open as if to say words she couldn't find. Bully would have tried to dodge if he'd taken over the boy's body last night. I'll still need to check the Granger girl, though. Alistair Moody went to Minerva's right and sat down. Harry had thought, in that split second, to try producing a wordless silver Patronus glow from his wand but his wand hadn't been in place to intercept in time. Not even close. Well, if I was feeling invincible before, that does for that. What a valuable life lesson, Mr. Moody. 
Then the flue fire burned green again and spat out the oldest, grimmest, toughest-looking witch Harry had ever seen, like beef jerky given human shape. The old witch did not have her wand in her hand, but she projected an air of authority that was stronger and stricter than Dumbledore's. This is Director Amelia Bones, Mr. Potter, said Headmistress McGonagall, who'd regained her poise. We are still waiting on Director Crouch. The corpse of Bartemius Crouch Jr. was identified among the dead Death Eaters, the old witch said without preamble, even as she continued toward the chairs. It took us entirely by surprise, and I'm afraid Bartemius is in considerable grief about it, on both counts. He will not be with us today. Harry kept the flinch inward. Amelia Bones sat down in a chair, sitting to Moody's own right. Headmistress McGonagall, said the elder witch, still without hesitation or delay. The line of Merlin unbroken, which Dumbledore left to me in Regency, is not responding to my hand. The Wizengamot must have a chief warlock who is trustworthy at once. Matters are in great flux in Britain. I must know what Dumbledore has done immediately. Crap. Moody's mad eye was rolling wildly. That's not good. Not good at all. Yes, well... Minerva looked rather apprehensive. I cannot say that for certain. Albus, well, he clearly had an intimation that he might not survive this war. But I do not think he was expecting Miss Granger to come back from the dead and kill Voldemort only hours later. I do not think Albus was expecting that at all. I'm not quite sure what his legacies will make of that. Amelia Bones rose half out of her chair. You mean to imply that the Granger girl may have inherited the line of Merlin unbroken? This is a catastrophe! She is twelve years old! Untested! Surely Albus would not be so irresponsible as to leave the line to whoever happened to defeat Voldemort without knowing who! Well, putting it simply... Minerva's fingers squared the paperwork she'd taken with her, now lying on the desk. Albus did think he knew who would defeat Voldemort. There was a prophecy concerning it, a verified one, which now seems to be in abeyance, or... I don't know, Madame Bones. I have one letter from Mr. Potter that I am to give him in the event of Albus's death or other departure, and then another letter that Albus said Mr. Potter would be able to open only after he defeated Voldemort. I'm not sure what will happen to it now. Perhaps Miss Granger will be able to open it? Or perhaps it can never be opened. Hold up. Mad-Eye Moody reached into his robes, drew out a long, gray-knobbed wand that Harry recognized. It was Dumbledore's wand, of a form and style not like any other wand in Hogwarts. Moody laid the wand on the table. Before we go on any further, Albus left me an instruction or two of his own. Pick up this wand, boy. Harry hesitated thinking. Albus Dumbledore sacrificed himself for me. He trusted Moody. This probably isn't a trap. Then Harry began to reach for the wand. It leapt up and flew across the table into Harry's hand, and the moment that Harry's fingers grasped the handle, it was like he heard a song, a paean of glory and battle that resonated in his mind. A wave of white fire ran up the handle and over the wood, magnifying as it moved, bursting from the end in a tremendous spray of sparks. Through the wood beneath his fingers ran a sense of strength and constrained danger, like a leashed wolf. 
Harry was also receiving an impression of distant skepticism, as if the wand had some level of awareness, and it was wondering how the hell it had ended up being held by a Hogwarts first year. Right, said Mad-Eye Moody into the puzzled stairs. So it wasn't Miss Granger who defeated Voldy then. Didn't think so. What? Mad-Eye Moody gave Amelia Bones a respectful nod. Albus said this wand goes to whoever defeats its previous master. Took it off old Grindy, he did. Then Voldy defeats Albus yesterday. Do I need to spell it out, Amelia? Amelia Bones was staring at Harry, her mouth wide open. That might not be right. He swallowed another pang of the awful guilt. I mean, Voldemort used me as a hostage because I... I was stupid. And Dumbledore gave himself up to save me. Maybe the wand thinks that counts as my defeating Dumbledore. Um, I did defeat Voldemort, though. Vanquished him. But I think it's better if nobody has any idea I was there. Silence amid the racket of dozens of strange objects. That must have taken some doing. The scarred man inclined his head slowly, a gesture of profound respect. Don't feel too guilty about losing Albus and David and Flamel, son, no matter how stupid you were. You won in the end. All of us put together never could. Just to check, son, you and David also destroyed Voldy's Horcrux? And you're certain it was the real thing? Harry hesitated, weighing up the probable consequences of trust, the possible disasters of silence, and then shook his head to Moody in reply. He'd been planning to tell at least McGonagall about what was now inside her school anyway. Voldemort had rather a lot of horcruxes, actually. So instead, I obliviated most of his memories, then transfigured him into this. Harry raised his hand and silently pointed to the emerald on his ring. Once again, silence amid the racket of dozens of strange objects. Huh. Moody said, leaning back in his chair. Minerva and I will be putting some alarms and enchantments on that ring of yours, son, if you don't mind. Just in case you forget to sustain the transfiguration one day. And don't go hunting any other dark wizards, ever. Just live a quiet and peaceful life. The scarred man took a handkerchief and wiped at the beads of sweat that had now appeared on his forehead. But well done, lad. You and David both. May he rest in peace. This was his idea, I'm guessing. Well done, I say. Indeed, said Amelia Bones, who had now regained her composure. We all owe the both of you a tremendous debt of gratitude. But I say again that there is urgent business regarding the line of Merlin Unbroken. I believe, Minerva McGonagall said slowly, that I had best give Albus's letters to Mr. Potter, right now. At the top of her stack of papers now lay a parchment envelope and a rolled-up parchment scroll sealed with a gray ribbon. The headmistress gave Harry the parchment envelope first, and Harry opened it. If you are reading this, Harry Potter, then I have fallen to Voldemort, and the quest now lies in your hands. 
Though it may shock you to learn, this was the end that I wished in my heart would come to pass. For as I write this, it yet seems possible that Voldemort may fall by my own hand. And then, in time, I shall myself become the darkness you must overcome to enter fully into your power. For it was said once that you might need to raise your hand against your mentor, the one who made you, who you loved. It was said that you might be my downfall. If you are reading this, then that shall never come to pass, and I am glad of it. Even so, Harry, I would spare you this, the lonely fight against Voldemort. I write this, vowing to shelter you as long as I can, no matter the final cost to myself. But if I have failed, then know that I am glad of it, in my own selfish way. With my passing, there is none left to oppose Voldemort as an equal, save you. His shadow will fall long and terrible over magical Britain, and many will suffer and die for it. That shadow will not lift until you destroy its source, until you cleanse the heart of the darkness. How you are to do this, I do not know. If Voldemort knows not the power you bear, then neither do I. You must find that power within yourself. You must learn to wield it. You must become Voldemort's final judge, and I beg you not to make the error of showing him mercy. My wand, which I have left to you in Moody's keeping, you must not dare to wield against Voldemort. For when that wand's master is defeated, it passes to the victor in turn. When you have conquered my conqueror, then the wand will answer truly to your hand. But if you try to turn it against Voldemort before then, it will betray you for certain. Keep it out of Voldemort's grasp at all costs. I should advise you not to wield that wand at all, yet it is a device of great power which you might need in some desperate case. But if you pick it up, you must fear its treachery at all times. In my absence, the wizen gamut will inevitably fall to Malfoy. The line of Merlin unbroken I have passed to you, with Amelia Bones as your regent, until you come of age or come into your power. But she cannot oppose Malfoy for long, not with myself gone and Voldemort returned to advise him. Soon, I think, the Ministry will fall, and Hogwarts will become the last fortress. To Minerva I have left the Hogwarts keys, but you alone are its prince, and she will help you however she can. Alistair now leads the Order of the Phoenix. Heed his words well, both his advice and his confidences. It is one of my life's greatest regrets that I did not heed Alistair more and sooner. That you will, in the end, defeat Voldemort, I have no doubt. For that will be only the beginning of your life's destiny. Of that, too, I am certain. When you have vanquished Voldemort, when you have saved this country, then, I hope, you may embark upon the true meaning of your days. Hurry then to begin. Yours in death, or in whatever. Dumbledore. P.S. The passwords are Phoenix Price, Phoenix Fate, and Phoenix Egg. Spoken within my office. Minerva can move those rooms to wherever you can reach them more easily.
Harry folded up the parchment and put it back into the envelope, frowning thoughtfully, then took the grey ribbon scroll from the headmistress. When the long grey wand in Harry's hand touched the ribbon, it fell away at once, and Harry unrolled the scroll and read it. Dear Harry James Potter Evans Verris, If you are reading this, you have defeated Voldemort. Congratulations on that. I hope you had some time in which to celebrate before you opened this scroll, because the news in it is not cheerful. During the first Wizarding War, there came a time when I realized that Voldemort was winning, that he would soon hold all within his hand. In that extremity, I went into the Department of Mysteries, and I invoked a password which had never been spoken in the history of the line of Merlin Unbroken, did a thing forbidden, and yet not utterly forbidden. I listened to every prophecy that had ever been recorded. And so, I learned that my troubles were far worse than Voldemort. From certain seers and diviners have come an increasing chorus of foretellings that this world is doomed to destruction. And you, Harry James Potter Evans Varys, are one of those foretold to destroy it. By rights, I should have ended your line of possibility, stopped you from ever being born, as I did my best to end all the other possibilities I discovered on that day of terrible awakening. Yet, in your case, Harry, and in your case alone, the prophecies of your apocalypse have loopholes, though those loopholes be ever so slight. Always, he will end the world, not he will end life. Even when it was said that you would tear apart the very stars in heaven, it was not said that you would tear apart the people. And so, it being clear that this world is not meant to last, I have gambled literally everything upon you, Harry James Potter Evans Verris. There were no prophecies of how the world might be saved, so I found the prophecies that offered loopholes in the destruction, and I brought about the strange and complex conditions for those prophecies to come to pass. I ensured that Voldemort discovered a certain one of those prophecies, and so, even as I had feared, condemned your parents to death and made you what you are. I wrote a strange hint in your mother's potions textbook, having no idea why I must, and this proved to show Lily how to help her sister, and ensured you would gain Petunia Evans' heartfelt love. I snuck invisibly into your bedroom in Oxford and administered the potion that is given to students with time-turners to extend your day's cycle by two hours. When you were six years old, I smashed a rock that was on your windowsill, and to this day I cannot imagine why. All in the desperate hope that you can pass us through the eye of the storm, somehow end this world, and yet bring out its people alive. Now that you have passed the preliminary test of defeating Voldemort, I place my all in your hands. All the tools I can possibly give you, the line of Merlin unbroken, the command of the Order of the Phoenix, all my wealth and all my treasures. 
the Elder Wand out of the Deathly Hallows, the loyalty of such of my friends as may heed me. I have left Hogwarts in Minerva's care, for I do not think you will have time for it, but even that is yours if you demand it from her. One thing I do not give you, and that is the prophecies. Upon the moment of my departure, they will be destroyed, and no future ones will be recorded, for it was said that you must not look upon them. If you think this frustrating, believe me when I say that even your wit cannot comprehend what frustration you have been spared. I will die, or be lost by you, or in some other way be taken from you. The prophecies are unclear, naturally, without ever once knowing what the future truly holds, or why I must do what I do. It is all cryptic madness, and you are well rid of it. There can only be one king upon the chessboard. There can only be one piece whose value is beyond price. That piece is not the world. It is the world's people, wizard and muggle alike, goblins and house elves and all. While survives any remnant of our kind, that peace is yet in play, though the stars should die in heaven. And if that peace be lost, the game ends. Know the value of all your other pieces, and play to win. Signed, Albus. And first half of chapter 119. Thank you to the following people. Amelia Bones by Melissa Kessler. Minerva McGonagall, read by Autumn Rachel Dryden. Mad I me. James. Dumbledore, Drake Walker. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. Today's music is Morning Sunlight by Chrono Symphonic. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the second half of Chapter 119, Something to Protect, Albus Dumbledore.